0: For many people in Alberta and anyone who's paid attention to its politics over the last decade, Derek Fildebrandt needs no introduction. But for those of you who aren't Alberta political junkies, and and really you're missing out right now, here's a bit of background. Fildebrandt was born in Canada, Ontario and moved to Alberta in 2012 when he became the Alberta Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, an organization that fights for lower taxes on almost anything and routinely serves as a de facto farm team for conservative political parties. Fildebrandt quickly became a thorn in the side of PC governments at the time, attacking both Alison Redford and Jim Prentice and their governments for wasteful spending and personal foibles. He decided to jump into the game himself in 2015, running for the Wildrose Party in Strathmore Brooks and winning handily. After some internal battles, in the wake of Jason Kenney's merger of Alberta's two conservative parties, Phil Fildebrandt sat as an independent. Then he started his own party, the Freedom Conservative Party. Here's how he described the party at his first news conference.
1: The Freedom Conservative Party is a place for grassroots conservatives, libertarians and Alberta patriots. We are a party that wants a better Alberta than one dominated either by big government socialism or by the big business establishment.
0: Those concerns and values were the same ones that ultimately brought Jason Kenney down as leader of the UCP in 2022. But in 2019, Phil DeBrant was defeated after getting less than 10% of the vote. After that loss, he told the media that he planned to, quote, get a real job, make some money, and then went into journalism, of all things. He bought the Western Standard, a right-wing publication that was co-founded by Ezra Levant in 2004 and stopped publishing in 2007. Then he bought Alberta Report, another right-wing Alberta publication with even deeper roots in the province. Derek Fildebrand is a libertarian, a professional pot stirrer, and someone who doesn't lack for strong opinions or the willingness to express them. So Derek, welcome to Maxed Out.
1: Yeah, I think it's a pretty fair introduction. I I, I pretty much say we have uh, many of the same attributes just uh, applied in inverse directions.
0: <laughs> I'll take that. I, obviously, I wanted to have you on here to talk about Alberta nationhood, but I, I think we have to begin with a question that is sort of roiling Alberta politics at the moment that we're talking, which is the the so-called just transition and the furor that's been kicked up around it by Premier Daniel Smith. My perspective on this, I think it's important to have a conversation about the energy transition. And I think it's fair game to express concern about the impact on the livelihoods of the people who work here. It's like, it's a concern that I've expressed in my own columns, both about the name, the problems with the name and and the the need to pay attention to the impacts on, on people who work here. I don't think that extends to making up facts or pretending the sky is yellow when it's very clearly blue, and that's what Premier Smith and her senior staff did with that federal briefing package that discusses the impacts of the just transition. They claim that it said the Feds plan to eliminate 200,000 oil and gas jobs in Alberta, along with 2.7 million jobs nationally. Uh, One of the ministers in her government actually said that it planned to eliminate 2.7 million jobs in Alberta before it was pointed out that we don't even have 2.7 million jobs here. If you bothered to actually read the document, uh, and I did, I don't think they did. It's not what it said. It said they, the jobs would be impacted, not eliminated. And, and I double-checked with the feds to make sure that, that my interpretation was correct. So we're kind of left with two options here, uh, as I see it. Either Premier Smith and her staff deliberately misrepresented the contents of the memo, or they genuinely misunderstood it. Which do you think it is?
1: Well, it might surprise you, not surprise you that uh, we have different readings of the document. Uh, I have read uh, some of your, uh, your writing on this in the National Observer. I, I, I think it is abundantly clear, at least as I read it, that the federal government does plan on eliminating the fossil fuel energy sector over time. The just transition documents that have, you know, they were posted, but they really didn't catch much attention until very recently. They're not the plan to eliminate the jobs and the energy, se- uh, fossil fuel energy sector, but they are uh, the plan to deal with the jobs that will be eliminated. But I, I think you have interpreted this as, well, these jobs are disappearing anyway as energy consumption changes globally in the marketplace. Uh, I, I read it differently that the federal government is actively trying to change the energy industry and the energy market in Canada that the federal government is actively moving this along, not shutting it down with a light switch overnight, but doing what it can still first limit its growth, then limit its success. and so then, you know, maybe the market will take care of the rest when it becomes so unprofitable. But I also don't read it as this is just some harmless impact study about something that is happening with natural market forces anyway. I read it as the federal government is trying to shut down the industry, and this is their attempt to cushion the transition that they are hastening along. You
0: know, in Alberta... I think a lot of people see me as very progressive uh very sort of climate change minded and then in bc people think i'm i i'm in a shill for the fossil fuel industry and i think the trudeau government is in a similar spot in some respects so in alberta i think your perspective is is quite widely shared about about how they view the industry then you go to a place like BC or Vancouver or, or Quebec or Toronto and, and they go, well, why are they spending $20 billion to build TMX, why did they throw hundreds of millions of dollars at LNG Canada if they're trying to shut this industry down. Why are they giving it the two biggest new export market infrastructure projects in in history. Like it's just that that duality I find really interesting that you know you have a government that is supposedly trying to hurt this industry or or shorten its lifespan, and yet they're the ones who are making these infrastructure projects happen. TMX,
1: the federal government would not have had to buy if it hadn't, you know, passed no more pipelines legislation, if it hadn't created a climate that made it damn near impossible for it to get done. I'm against the nationalization of anything. I don't think the government should own virtually anything. So buying TMX was wrong, just as I think it was wrong for Jason Kenney's government to waste billions of dollars in buying uh, Keystone XL. Uh, Governments make very bad bets. In business, a lot lot of conservatives or libertarians will say, uh, well, the government should be picking winners and losers. But then they kind of suspend that belief when they really like the winner. It's an industry that it's kind of weird how the political spectrum has favorite industries as if that should really matter. But, you know, people on the right like fossil fuels, people on the left like windmills. I don't believe in picking winners and losers on either of them. And so, you know, Jason Kenney buying uh, Keystone was just as bad as Trudeau buying TMX. I think Trudeau bought TMX, though, because he realized that, you know, he had an ally in Rachel Notley at a progressive center left government in Alberta, which was pretty unprecedented with the possible exception of Alison Redford. You know, to not do that would have left her politically high and dry. So I I think he was trying to save her hide there. I
0: I just want to clarify one thing that I I do hear this a lot, that it was, you know, the Fed's. Bought TMX because they hamstrung it with all this red tape. It was actually the government of John Horgan. I mean, they were the ones that were putting up all the, the regulatory permitting issues and, and and really kind of yeah. That was not yeah. an insignificant
1: factor in this. I don't
0: discount it, but I think it was it was a combination of the two. What percentage
1: you can break down about who was responsible for it? I mean, that's that's pretty subjective. But it, no doubt, John Horgan's government, backed up in a semi-formal coalition with the Greens, bore
0: a huge share of that responsibility. You're right. I mean, I think, and I've said and I've told people in, in the Trudeau government, I've said, I don't think that your approach here is good for the country. I don't think it makes sense. You're dropping this issue right into Alberta's lap, you know, right before an election, right when we have a lot of important things to discuss, and it's getting everyone distracted and and turning it into this federal provincial bun fight. And then on the other side, you know, you have, you have the premier who is And I said it in a column, she's lying. She's lying to people. She's been told that this is not what the document says. She could have moderated her language and and used the language you said, which is, okay, it's not a plan to eliminate jobs, but there is a broader sort of push to eliminate jobs. No, no, she's sticking with the, this plan is about eliminating this many jobs. I mean, what does that do to our politics, that sort of willingness to kind of fire people up with things that are not accurate? Good politicians don't do
1: nuance. Nuance gets you in trouble. I, you know, on, on her radio show and you know when she had podcasts here at the Western Standard, Daniel Smith did a lot of nuance, and nuance gets you in trouble. There's a good reason politicians don't do nuance. We all say we want them to because life would probably be better, but it makes for poor politics in the Democratic popularity contest because uh, everybody plays gotcha. Like, for example, the Just Transition document, has got nuance, and that gets the government in trouble. If the Liberals had just said we're going to help people transition you know out of that industry if they want to, and they kept it very vague, they probably wouldn't be in trouble. So no, i don't I don't think Premier Smith is engaging in terribly much nuance here. but you know I want to pick up something you said about the timing. Uh, you know, and that's kind of going to what Rachel Notley has said. and shes she's in a tough spot here, too. You know she has her hardcore left and kind of eco base. And then she's got to win over regular everyday Albertans if she wants to form government here. And she's got to do it outside of Edmonton. You know, I I know unionized guys working in Fort McMurray and they have voted NDP before, but they're pretty leery on this stuff. They don't want to vote to get rid of their own jobs. Her position has been pretty muddled on this as well. Uh, You know, first she stayed very suspiciously quiet and then she's kind of muddled into, well, the timing is bad. Ottawa shouldn't be dropping this on our laps but not really outright condemning it in the harshest possible terms. And and then kind of going after the province, I'm not really sure what her criticism of the provincial government is. She's criticizing them saying they are asleep at the wheel or something like that. I think it's, uh, to read into a bit, I think it's just that maybe she's arguing she could maybe strike a deal with Ottawa that Smith can't because Smith is less diplomatic with Ottawa.
0: Well, to your point about, about deal-making, I mean, yeah, I think it was you yourself, not, not five minutes ago, who said that Trudeau built TMX because Notley was a better partner for him and, and he wanted to do her a solid. So I I think there is some some substance to the idea that a constructive relationship with Ottawa is going to do more for Alberta than a destructive one. But, you know, we're in different silos, we're in different universes politically. And I'm curious about what the people you talk to, uh, how they feel about not the just transition, but, but the energy transition, you know, the, the, the concept that there's, billions, trillions of dollars that are going to be spent over the next 20, 30 years on carbon capture and storage, on hydrogen, on renewables, and that this is actually, you know, an economic opportunity for, even for the province of Alberta, obviously for Canada, but even for Alberta, you had the CEO of Synovus, Alex Porbe, coming out saying, he thinks that if we do this right, if we get the transition correct, it could be a net job creator for Alberta. So does that sense of opportunity does that connect with people in, in, that you talk to, or do they sort of think that that's spin and 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 they don't buy that that sort of framing of it?
1: You know, it, it might not be as black and white as you think. People don't oppose other forms of energy. I think what they oppose is that it's being forced by government. If, if it's market forces driving things, then I don't think people have much of a problem. I mean, when we eventually get good batteries that can store large amounts of energy for large periods of time. That is going to revolutionize the entire world. And we don't know when that's going to happen. That could happen, it could happen in five years, it could happen in 50, but we don't know when that's going to happen. But it it is likely to happen at some point. But if it's driven being driven by market forces and it's happening naturally, you can't stop it. The market is nature and you can't stop a force of nature. It's natural selection. And but if it's being coerced by government, if we're you know, if we're intentionally trying to throttle one industry and subsidize another at its expense, uh, then we've got a problem with it. There's a problem in Alberta where, and, and and I get why, the big players, the really big guys, you know, Synovus, CNRLs, they speak for the industry in the media, but they don't really speak for the industry. And there is a huge difference in the outlooks between the big guys and the little guys. We saw those divisions as early as, you know, the royalty review with Ed Stelmack, the big guys. They didn't like it, but they all pretended they did. They're like, "Oh, paying our fair share," and they, because, because their priority is always maintaining good relations with the government, provincial and federal, and the little guys. Well, they lost their shit, <laughs> and, and and they and they broke, you know, the cardinal rule of. The Alberta business political uh, complex, and they broke from the PCs and started funding the Wild Rose. And that was back in like two thousand eight nine. You saw it when you know Rachel Notley brought in her uh,
0: climate action plan or something climate, like that. Climate um, leadership plan. I I remember. Oh it yeah,
1: well. I remember. I called. I remember. I, I changed the name of it in the legislature to the Climate Leadership Action Plan, so I could call it the CLAP. And. Uh, <laughs> You know, this included a carbon tax, caps on emissions and things. And the big guys stood right beside her. And they didn't actually like it. Well, it, some of them liked it because it kind of cartelized the oil sands, preventing smaller, new, newer entrants into it. But they didn't. there was a lot of it they didn't like. But their priority is maintaining good relationships with federal and provincial governments. The little guys opposed it. and And also, there's a difference between the leaders in the industry, the big owners, and the workers. The big owners they might be fine with a transition to other forms of energy where you know they're getting subsidized by government and they're still making lots of money but the guy with a high school education from a small town without bright prospects who goes and works on the rigs 80 hours a week and makes 150 grand a year he is never under any circumstance going to have that kind of opportunity in some other sub government subsidized transition job those jobs will not exist in their equivalent. So some some guys might make out fine, but I, I think a lot of the guys on the ground for who the oil patches, the big opportunity they've got, it's not going to be there for them.
0: That's that's bang on on a couple of fronts. You know, certainly there's a divide between the larger players and the, the service companies and the the sort of more entrepreneurial, but this, you know, the, the more, the independence. more producer, yeah. the independents. And then we, you know, I saw that when I was inside the climate, like climate change office in Alberta, you know, we, there was definitely a, a different approach in terms of dealing with both groups. And uh, I think that divide is only going to get more stark and uneven as we go forward, because the, you know, the, the large oil sands companies, they have the the scale, they have the access to capital. They can do things that the smaller companies, I think, are going to struggle with a little bit. But the other side of that issue, and, and I think it's one that the left and, and certainly the feds have kind of fallen down on is, you're right, in the energy transition, there will not be jobs for people who could drop out of high school or finish high school and then go work in the oil sands. You know, there'll be jobs for for educated people, for engineers, for skilled technicians. You know, if you're you're a skilled laborer in the energy sector, there will be something for you in the energy transition, almost certainly. But I, I think you and I are probably
1: disagreeing on, is this market forces? Or is this government? I, I think to some extent there are market forces. There are some investors who want to see this, some of the big funds want to see this, but it, it it's certainly not universal. I just don't believe that this is happening in the total absence of government and that government's got nothing to do with it. Government is hastening it along to what exact percentage we can split responsibility between market forces and the government. I don't know, and would probably disagree on what that split is, but this is not taking place in a vacuum with pure natural selection in the market deciding that we're not doing oil sands and we are doing wind and solar and hydrogen i think
0: it's probably the the fundamental disagreement between us on this is that you know i think that it is appropriate and and necessary for governments to to put a cost on pollution and the risks that that entails because obviously that we've seen this time and time again climate change has economic impacts on our country. Yeah, and No, no, the world. no, no one's and so, talking about
1: taxes on lithium and like these very socially and environmentally destructive mines. It's, uh, do we have a carbon tax or nothing? It's not, are we having uh, our
0: carbon tax and lithium mining tax and all of this? It's not treated equally. I would argue that, you know, stuff like lithium, that, that gets more to labor conditions and things like that, rather than pricing a, a pollution. But I'm certainly open to having a conversation about the full scope of impacts on both sides i still think renewables will come out ahead but i agree with you that you know <laughs> that i'm not suggesting that the reason why companies are moving away from building oil sands projects is just the market uh, on its own it's the market is recognizing that that governments are pricing climate risk they have to incorporate that into their modeling okay. and they're going well wait a minute do we really want to invest 10 billion dollars in a project that will take 15 years to pay out if we don't know what the policy landscape is going to be in five years, never mind 15. I think
1: you and I strangely agree on that. It's, it's, there's uncertainty around this stuff. I mean, the carbon tax just goes up and up and up. I mean, it's, it's been promised to be one thing, and then it just keeps on changing. Who, who in their right mind would try to build a pipeline today? There's so much uncertainty around that stuff. So yeah, it, it is the market reacting to a whole host of circumstances, the, one of the largest of which is government policy.
0: And by governments that are doing their governmenting well beyond our borders here. I think we sometimes imagine that, you know, certainly I see people imagining that, oh, if we just had the right combination of governments, then we could build all these different pipelines and all these different projects. And I think that just sort of, ignores the fact that we are part of a broader community of of laws and of markets and and we have to recognize that those have an impact on our choices too germany wants lng
1: japan wants lng like there there are markets for these things and others are stepping in to fill it
0: well i mean germany wants lng now uh so if we had a time machine and we can go back to 2011 and i've never opposed an lng facility this pisses people off in vancouver to no end but i've always thought There's a very clear case for exporting LNG out of Canada. Different oil sands pipelines, it's a different issue. But LNG, because you have more support among Indigenous communities in BC, you have, I think, a greater sense of social license, and it clearly has an impact on on emissions globally. Sure, let's do it. But we can't go back to 2011 and build those East Coast pipelines then. We have to sort of live in the now, and in the now, it doesn't make any sense. But what we can do is say, I told you so. I mean, I think it's important to point out here that that we have someone who was born and raised in Ontario and someone who was born and raised in Vancouver debating this sense of Alberta nationhood, which might be the most Alberta thing ever. I've sort of found that the most passionate Albertans tend to be from somewhere else. Why do you think it is that people from outside Alberta seem to sort of take these outsized roles in the conversation about Alberta?
1: <laughs> I was speaking very broadly, but I guess there's three kind of migrant to Alberta. There's... The international migrant who's coming from different countries, different cultures, there's the interprovincial migrant. And uh, some come here, it's just a good opportunity, it's a beautiful place, but they might not necessarily adopt the identity very strong. And then there's the category I would fall into. And we came here because we, we saw it as something unique and different. There's probably only three places in Canada with very strong regional identities, and that's Quebec, Alberta, and Newfoundland and Labrador. And I know everybody outside there is going to say, I'm a proud Vancouver Islander. I know you are, but it's it's not their primary identity for the most part. I was attracted to it. There's less belly acres here uh, on aggregate than other places. And we made Alberta as a choice. Some of us you know, have the fervor of the convert as opposed to some people who have been here for many generations, they take it for granted. They know Alberta is great, but it'll always be great because it is great. And it becomes a truism that will reinforce itself. Whereas many of us from elsewhere see that it's uh, it's an ethos that made
0: it this way. I would very much take issue with the idea that Albertans are not bellyachers. Lately, at least, uh, the, the bellyaching and the, and the complaining has almost become... part of the culture uh, here is, you know, complaining about Ottawa, complaining about Quebec. I mean, I think Alberta very clearly, as you say, it has a culture that is different from the rest of the country. I am sure that it doesn't rise to the level of nationhood, but sort of seems like it's in between what there is in Quebec and Newfoundland, where, you know, they had a sense of political nationhood before they were part of Canada, and then BC or Ontario, which they're proud to be from that province. But it does not rise to the same level of involvement or sort of emotional commitment as it does here in Alberta. I wanna bring in something you said in an interview you gave to the CBC in 2018 about the difference between Alberta's nationhood and what they have in Quebec.
1: I don't think we're a distinctive nation the way a lot of Quebecers consider themselves. We're Canadians. We might just be a different flavor of Canadians and and a part of Canada that gets a very bad deal so for me the, the the answer is a much greater degree of autonomy within Canada, uh, it, you know roughly along the lines of what Catalonia has has achieved for itself. I mean, they're they're still a part of Spain, but they get to retain a lot of their wealth at home. They have uh, a much greater degree of autonomy of their own affairs. I think that's that's where we want to go. Do you feel the same way
0: today as you did back then about the difference between sort of Quebec's nationhood and and what, what we have here in Alberta? It's a different kind of nationhood.
1: Quebec nationalism is uh, ethnic, linguistic, uh, used to be religious. I'm not sure that's a big, you know, Catholicism, I don't think plays a very significant role in Quebec anymore, but it's a more traditional European ethno-linguistic nationalism. Whereas nationalism in Alberta is more of a civic nationalism, or and I know we're probably going to parse words a little bit here, but more of a patriotism rather than nationalism per se. It's, you know, uh, yeah, we're, we're different. We do have a different culture here, but it's not radically
0: different. Are there any conditions where you could see yourself supporting the idea of an independent Alberta? Oh, yeah. You know, I was born a Canadian. I, I grew up on Army and Air
1: Force bases. Uh, I was a sea cadet. I, I, I spent all my summers as a sea cadet on military bases, and it was very flag, raw, raw patriotism. Uh, I, I grew up as probably the most flag draped, you know, red and white flag draped kid you can imagine. Uh, And so I I lived and breathed this stuff, but I'm an Albertan first before anything else. Every province in Canada, uh, in Confederation, negotiated its way in and they got deals normally involving Senate seats or all sorts of side deals. Uh, We've had asymmetrical federation from the very beginning. Uh, There was never negotiation with the people here. We were just in. For a time, we had control over our natural resources. Supreme Court rulings since with carbon tax and whatnot have called that into question at least. But... I think the best path forward is Alberta within Canada. I just don't think Canada can be fixed. And I think to fix Canada, you have to have a significant overhaul of the Constitution.
0: And I do not see that being politically possible. That's sort of the where the rubber meets the road on that is the idea of an independent Alberta having good relationships with its neighbours. Because you see this idea floated. And, and I, I will say, you know you've articulated a better case for Alberta nationhood than probably anything I've ever heard. The nature in which Alberta and Saskatchewan were created is, I think, a really good point. The thing I struggle with is, it's a really interesting theoretical debate, but I don't see any good outcome associated with Alberta independence. You will not suddenly be able to ramp up oil and gas production. You will not have the prosperity that I think people think would be there because you still have to get your product through bc you still have to deal with a world that is decarbonizing if there was ever a moment for this it was 50 years ago it, it is not today and and so how do you sort of think about the difference between the philosophical approach to alberta independence and the sort of real politic approach to it
1: well if you don't marry the two it's a it's a pointless debate i think some initial hardball would need to be played you know we wouldn't be able to get products through bc I I don't think that's the case. In the the hypothetical situation where this happened, Alberta becomes an independent republic, BC would become an exclave. It'd be like East Prussia. It'd be separated from the mainland. And so, sure, yeah, Canada, a, a vengeful rest of Canada could say, we're not allowing Alberta to move its goods through our borders, or at least build additional pipelines, etc. But Alberta would have a wild trump card and say, fine, Alberta, Canada can't move its products between BC and Saskatchewan or BC and Manitoba, wherever that border is drawn. You know, I I can't imagine a situation where Ottawa consents in the long term to have to move everything through the Suez Canal just to get between BC and Montreal or Halifax. They'd have a knife at our throat, but we would have a knife at theirs too. I, I would imagine that Canadian sensibility and predisposition towards compromise and goodwill would probably win out. If, if Alberta did leave, I, I think it would probably trigger a chain reaction across the country. Quebec only stays in Canada because it is profitable to do so. If Alberta left, there is no change to the equalization formula you can make that would keep Quebec as a net recipient of federal largesse. There's just no way you can make it happen. So if Alberta left, Quebec would probably be, be right behind too, because the, the remainder of confederation wouldn't make sense for them. And, you know, if Quebec's gone at that point, the whole project falls apart. I, I know we're into the extraordinarily hypothetical here. But, you know, if Alberta's gone, Quebec's gone, at this point, we're probably like a peaceful version of the breakup of Yugoslavia.
0: And I think you're right about the knock-on effects. Whenever I talk to people who are willing to kind of flirt with this this issue because it plays well for, for liberals in the rest of the country... I have to sort of point out that we should not be in the business of risking the unity of the country. It is not part of our brand. It never has been. It never should be.
1: Yeah, it's not a win-win for everybody. It's, it's a bad scenario. Uh, yeah. And I, I, I think people who think that it'd be easy are deluding themselves. And they're, you know, some people do delude themselves because they're so angry. I'm, I'm, I'm angry too. Canadians are predisposed towards compromise. If you want to know what a, what a Canadian thinks, just give them the options of A, B, and C. They'll pick B every single time. They're just programmed to do it. Canadians find compromise in this kind of event. I, I I feel like compromise and goodwill would almost certainly win out after a short period of anger.
0: Wow, I hope you're right. I feel like you might be saying that thing about Canadians and compromise as a bit of a as a bit of a slight, but I, I feel like it's one of our uh, one of our better it's, qualities. it's both a slight and a compliment. I, and it, it, it's different on different days. That's very Canadian of you. So I've, I, I've made a, I can't even take a
1: firm position on that.
0: <laughs> so I've made a point on this podcast of giving my guests the last word. Uh, and I'm obviously happy to do the same here. I just would like to ask a favor. Can you use those last words to offer a prediction about the election in May? Rachel
1: Notley's strong leader. She's likable. I've never known her well, but I, I, I've known her since before she was premier. And, and, and people like her. She's, she's not the boogeyman. The NDP is a bit of a boogeyman. though. I, I think the NDP have got a strong shot at the ring here. Uh, I have a hard time seeing the NDP beat a United Conservative Party that is at least mostly united temporarily. Conservatives have home field advantage in Alberta. That doesn't mean you can't lose a home game, but I'd, I'd, I'd handicap it 66% in favor of the UCP. 33, a 33% chance for the NDP is pretty good historically for the NDP in Alberta. I, I think they've got a reasonable chance, but they're betting against the House here.
0: I don't disagree with that necessarily. Uh, I, remember, I remember in 2015, it was a couple weeks before the election, and I think someone asked me to predict how many seats they would win, and I, I went crazy, and I said, 15. And, and, of course, they ended up winning many more than 15. So I, I thank you for that prediction, and I thank you for what I would say was a surprisingly delightful conversation about a lot of stuff. And, you know, we'll continue to agree to a disagree on, on some things, but uh, I really appreciate you taking the time and, and chatting with me well, here.
1: Hey, look, we, we both kind of play assholes on TV, but I, I could, you know, this is a podcast people can't see, but we could see each other. And I think when people can see each other, uh, they're less predisposed to be a dick. And uh, I, 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 I've enjoyed the conversation. And uh, I, I think this kind of talk across the divide uh, serves people well. We
0: can go back to being dicks now.
1: Uh, I'm going to get right on Twitter and tell you a name. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Agreed.